May is Fibromyalgia Awareness Month. It's important to raise awareness about this chronic and often debilitating invisible illness known as fibromyalgia. This month-long campaign is an opportunity to educate people about the symptoms, causes, and treatments of fibromyalgia, as well as to show support for those living with these and other related invisible illnesses. Through increased awareness, we can work towards better understanding and management of fibromyalgia and ultimately improve the quality of life for those who are affected by it. And now on to this week's episode. How have you looked at movement and exercise in the past? For many, it can be experienced as an awful-tasting medicine with terrible side effects when attempted. For many, this has left you frustrated. Learn this week from Rose's personal experience of putting her fibromyalgia into recovery and working with many clients in helping them do the same using movement optimally. This is Dr. Michael Lenz. I am host of the Conquering Your Fibromyalgia podcast. I also am author of the book, Conquering Your Fibromyalgia, Real Answers and Real Solutions for Real Pain. I have been a doctor for over 26 years. I am a pediatrician, an internal medicine doctor, as well as a lifestyle medicine physician. I work to weave the best of both medical management and lifestyle medicine to help all types of medical problems, but In regards to this podcast, working to help lessen the suffering and live the best with fibromyalgia and related conditions. Remember that this podcast is for educational purposes only. All signs and symptoms should be discussed with your own medical doctor. And now on to this week's episode. And even when I went through certification, my first certification, my incredible Pilates mentor commented that she didn't, as testament to her, she hadn't worked with very many people with fibromyalgia yet. I think she probably has since. And she didn't really know how to advise me in the certification program. And she challenged me and said, if you go through this and you learn this, think about how many people you can help. So she didn't pretend to be an expert on what I was going through, which made me respect her even more. And we learned together. And then she was right because I learned how I did crave this and how the exercise was helping because you're right. And I agree with you. That's partly still why I'm not fully retired, why I will still help people with fibromyalgia, that I learned that it was important to keep moving. And even still, I joke that I'm bad at rest days, at least full rest days, right? I might have to take a walk. I might have to do some mobility work. I might have to do a light Pilates workout. And normally in five or six days a week, I'm doing pretty heavy weight training and taxing my nervous system and taxing my cardiovascular system because that feels good. And I've been exercising for a lot of years and I'm fit. But if I don't move my joints around, I get stiff. And I wonder, as my friends age around me, how they describe their normal bodies getting stiff. And it doesn't sound that different from me. So I wonder how special I really am or if I just respect these early warning signs that I get, respect this sensitivity that my body gives me and lets me know what I need because I listen to it, but firmly believe that if you can 
figure out what feels good to your physical body with fibromyalgia or not, but especially with fibromyalgia and respect that might not mean that you can take a rest day when you sit on the couch all day long without moving, you're better off. So though I, again, wasn't aware and my motivation was possibly haywire slightly, now I have a much more healthy view of my physical body and I'm actually working to shift Hollywood's view of how we should demand that actors look. We should look like real people because we're telling the stories of real people. Why do we need to look in a way that is unhealthy or inaccurate and inaccurate representation of the cross-section of the human population of the world? I think that's not correct. So though I may have had the wrong intention at first, and intention is an intention, and I accidentally saved myself in many ways by not quitting exercise, even though I had to shift what it looked like in those years pretty dramatically. That's so true. I know that when I hear stories of all my patients over the years and what I've read is for many people who are going to the doctor who are not where Rose, where you are now, but are more in the middle of the curve or lower end of the curve with fibromyalgia, it's rare that somebody, when you ask them, and they may be, the body mass index is higher than in a healthy range and the their activity is in the low end of the percentiles, but to ask how active were you when you were a kid? And universally, everyone was very active with the only exceptions I find is that when somebody was living in a high abuse situation or an extreme high stress situation with adverse childhood events going around. But outside of that, and maybe modern times where now you just got video games to play, but just played, went outside, did dance routines probably in the room and played all of the time, whether it was maybe kickball, football with the boys and dancing and playing and tag and running around. That was normal for you. You recognized at an early age that, no, I need that. And I use this analogy over and over is that recognizing that there are and don't be, well, you have a dog. So I don't have a dog. We have lots of dogs in the neighborhood. There are some dogs who need to be walked or run nine miles a day. And some are happy with one time around the block. And that's about it. And can we just pet me? And I don't need to do much. But recognizing like, oh, I need that. And I think the struggle is when somebody's at the low end of their activity level, when they try to train with you, Rose, if they tried to do your workout today, they are going to say, I can't exercise. You're killing me. This is terrible. And they don't know how to do it properly. One of the lines that's in the movie that you said, I learned what made me feel good. And I learned what made me feel bad. And I just shared that with a patient today about your story. I said, I'm going to be interviewing you. And that's insight. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. And thank you for calling that out. I think the rest of it is I learned what made me feel good, the things that made me feel good and the things that made me feel bad. And I did more of what made me feel good and less of what made me feel bad. And I would say that I still do that. And that's a life philosophy, even to where in earlier, like it's last year now, wow, it's 2023. In late 2021 into 2022, I realized I didn't want to live in New York City anymore because my nervous system was overloaded there. 
And I don't quite know how I lived there as long as I did, though I have some ideas of how I tolerated it for like over a decade, in fact, almost a decade and a half. But that's for another podcast idea. But I realized I needed to live somewhere quieter. And I moved up to Poughkeepsie. And then I realized I missed my family. And now I'm talking to you from a little house that I bought in Ashland, Oregon. And I still audition for New York television shows just from here. But more of what made me feel good was spending more time with my family giving my dog a yard because she's lazy and she likes one walk a day, but likes to run around my yard and sleep the rest of the time and having a quieter pace. There was really extreme wind here yesterday. And I, there was a siren outside and I realized as I was like in my bedroom, ready to go to bed that there were sirens. And I was like, Oh, there are never, I'm not in New York city. I'm in Ashland, Oregon. There's a siren. I hope somebody's okay. There's extreme wind. It was very funny. It was like, instead of in New York city, it's just sirens that just, you don't even think about it. Here it's, oh, do I know them? Is it my neighbor? There's a siren. So even to the point of considering my mental health and my nervous system and a day-to-day life and the pace of that life, how close I live to other people, whether that means there are noises and smells, or I believe that the energy of a space impacts how we operate and impacts our nervous system. I have taken it into a completely granular sense to an extreme degree to make sure that I create the environment that is most likely to have me thrive, right? But that started in my 20s when I got curious about what was going wrong, when I decided I was done. Because by the time I graduated college, I was like at rock bottom, right? And I was like, okay, I don't want to go any lower, but I don't know how to go up from here. And there weren't, it was 2005, 2006, There weren't even still a lot of resources then. This is still early in what we know about fibromyalgia. So I was on my own to to learn this, right? And the only thing I had to tell me was my own body and the signals it was giving me and what I could learn about it and how I could be curious. And it was not linear. It's one of those graphs where they say, you think that your trajectory will be a straight line with an arrow, but it's that meme that has just all these squiggles around it until you get from here to there. I mean, it was very seemingly random in how I got to being in remission. But if I look back, it wasn't. There was a lot of logic with how I pursued things and one thing led to another. It's like, okay, I like Pilates. There's no direct weight moving through my joint because there's a spring, right? The weight distribution of the resistance you're using is an indirect. And then I was like, okay, I'm afraid of using other weights because Pilates got me pain-free first and I stopped doing any other exercise for a couple of years. And then it's, oh, there's a thing called a kettlebell. That's interesting the weight distribution is also indirect with a kettle. Maybe I can lift kettlebells and maybe that will be okay. And then I started weight training and then, wow, my body's recovering really well. My joints seem okay. Can I do something with a barbell now? Is that safe? Is that all right? Oh, I'm recovering. It's okay. And then one thing led to another. There's my dog flapping her ears. And over the years, I was able to learn and take those steps. But When I work with people, even now with fibromyalgia, I agree with you that really if someone is coming truly from zero, they're not even always directly right for my program. I let them know that. I always give a free phone call to anybody who leans toward me and is interested in the program. And I will talk to them for a half an hour and listen to where they are. And I will tell them honestly what 
whether I think they're ready or not. And the great thing is if they're not ready, the things that they need to do to get ready are free and simple. It's like, maybe they need to, maybe they're able to walk about two minutes without stopping and recover from that. But maybe they need to take six months to get to where they can walk for 15 minutes and recover and be okay the next day and do it again. And again, that's free. Just increasing the duration of the time that you're active under no impact or very low impact is all they really need to do to get ready. Or maybe it's a mindset thing. Maybe they really are in a tough place and they need some support from their family around them in order to make the time for themselves. A lot of people with fibromyalgia are overextended. There are a lot of givers. They take care of a lot of other people before themselves. So that's also something I'm trying to listen for to make sure, oh, can you prioritize your own health and your own body yet? And if you can't, that's okay. But that's something that you'd want to be able to come to before they're really ready to start. Even though my program is very simple and very boring, I joke about it. It's like short duration, simple, because you really can't overwhelm the body with fibromyalgia, whether there is a pre-existing training age or not. I'm rambling now a little bit on the program, but I agree that you have to be very thoughtful about where someone is starting from and take care to explain some of the things that you and I would understand because we understand enough about the neurological system and recovery from exertion, right? The average person hasn't spent time geeking out on that. They need to understand what that means and they need to understand that their body's just giving them signals though they may be louder and more extreme, I believe those signals are legitimate. And if we learn to listen to them and not be afraid of them, they can open the door for healthy exertion in the long run. But that's also why with my program, it's a year long. And I literally talk to the person once a month for a year. And a lot of them is just like holding their hand and saying, great, that's a signal. And helping make sure that they're not afraid to tune into their body because I'm not upset for the fact that I and probably most people with an issue like this, to some degree, we dissociate. It it becomes too overwhelming. It becomes upsetting to feel pain, to feel fatigue, to feel different, to not be able to handle as much as other people, even to have your brain go foggy when you're trying to use it. There's a lot that's extremely frustrating. So it's sometimes easier to shut off the connection that you'd have to your body and stop listening to those signals that's a survival mechanism. And I'm not upset about it. There's a reason why our brain can do that. And it can be really important when someone is actively in trauma, like you're mentioning some children who are in some of those situations. And sometimes if a kid can, when they need to disassociate, then get out of the situation and then work on healing it. Those are defense mechanisms. They protect us to some degree. But if I'm then asking you to go tune into your body and listen to your body, I do need to make sure that they're prepared for that. They may need mental health support. I'm not a therapist. They may need someone to help navigate trauma before they can then go into their body and listen to everything that's going on. Because if they're not accustomed to doing that can be triggering, even though it's ultimately healthy in the long run, right? To pay attention to your body and listen. So I'm also really lucky that I... My first exercise modality that I truly learned was Pilates because it teaches you to be in your body. You cannot be anywhere else. There's, I joke 
when again, retired from it now, but when I had in-person Pilates clients on the machines in busy New York, I trained like, I had a lot of male clients, which was also really fun. And I had like partners in law firms, like big New York, big jobs, big people, big stressful lives. And they'd come in and I remember they would come in like spouting about their lives and then their bodies would get conditioned almost like a Pavlov response where they would get in the door and suddenly they would turn off and they would get into the workout and only be able to think about what they were doing because the exercise itself was complicated. You have to pay attention to the moving parts of the machine. Even if you're not paying attention to your body, you can't be distracted. It's unsafe. And if they were distracted, I would bring their attention back. So one of the big gifts of that modality, in my opinion, is the fact that it forces you to be present. It literally doesn't give you a choice. Whereas something like yoga, which is also beautiful, it's easier to go somewhere else, right? Pilates, you have to be, or you might fall off. So <laughs> let's be present here. So I'm very grateful that that was the first exercise modality that I dove in with my whole body to learn. And when I was practicing in, in my certification, we had to do a certain amount of hours where I just did the exercises. I had practice hours that had to be signed off on. I couldn't be anywhere else, but in my body for all of those hours. Again, when I was like 22 or 23, whenever I got that certification, what is time? I don't know. There's so many important points that you made and I think that there is a battle that you probably do with your clients and with yourself and having that reflection because when somebody is living with fibromyalgia, all of the senses are heightened and that includes light, sound, smell. And for 10 years, you forgot to realize, wow, there's a lot of noise pollution that is really hard to navigate that a non-fibromyalgia style nervous system doesn't have to deal with. And the emotional intensity of things are even more intense. So it can be exhilarating. And that's part of that passion that is a blessing when you are working as an actor to be able to feel because you've probably physically felt all types of emotions as a champion athlete performing at a high level, knowing and feeling what it's like to be successful, yet to be rejected and to be at the lowest point. So when you are probably working with clients, I'm guessing you're highly aware of that yet also have to have highly structured routine and recognize that perception doesn't always mean reality. So one simple thing and in a perfect world, and I bet if, if people are going to get a hold of you after this podcast, you don't have enough bandwidth to handle everybody who wants to probably handle them. So that's, and I don't have enough bandwidth to handle everybody who wants to come and see me as a doctor. And I'm hoping that other doctors and people, healthcare providers out there will learn more and hear from your story. But I like to use a simple activity counter to get a baseline. Now, Pilates uses muscles and weightlifting that doesn't count for steps. And it's not a perfect thing, but to have an idea. One of my patients I just saw today that was talking about who's a pharmacist and she gets 20,000 steps a day, probably 80% is walking around the pharmacy. She has recognized she needs that when there's high stress and other things in life. And there are some other medications she's using to help manage some of the other to help with this as well. But that's what she needs to feel normal is what you've realized that offering a structured regimen and say, when somebody says, oh, I had this terrible flare and I'm like, tell me what happened. Well, I went to the county fair 
And then I helped my brother move. And so how many steps did you get that day? 14,000. What was your average? Five? That was a lot. That's three times as much as you normally get. You have to throttle your expectations. And sometimes the I'm feeling good, which in the short term, you have that natural endorphin high of I'm feeling good. But if you don't keep that throttle down, that will then pay for it the next day or later in night when you're sitting on the drive home from the county fair and you wake up. Is that a common experience you've seen working with clients? Stay with us. We'll be right back. I want to briefly interrupt the podcast to inform you about the Fibromyalgia Starter Pack, which is now available. If you are new to this podcast, it categorizes the episodes in a way that it's more beneficial for those new to fibromyalgia. You can access the link in the show notes to learn more. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think what you're talking about and what a gift also to tell this patient, to give them that awareness and to shine that light on that, because that's often what's missing. We don't look at the this and then that or the difference between the days. We just get upset that our body can't handle what others can handle because everybody else in the family was fine at the fair or something like that. And I think something that I'm extremely passionate about helping people understand in regards to how the physical body manages fibromyalgia is that there's a different level of sensitivity of something I I like to call resilience, right? It's not about the output or the function necessarily. It's more about finding a baseline of what your body can do today. And then I talk about this like invisible line. And over that year, I'm helping my clients first to figure out where the line is. We don't even know where it is. So we're going to make mistakes in the first three months because you don't know where the line is. I don't know where the line is. Your body's going to tell us where the line is. And when we find it, we're going to set it down. And then guess what? Just kidding. It's a moving target. That line doesn't stay where it is because as you keep giving your body regular, consistent stimulus on a daily basis, that is a manageable point that starts behind the line, right? We find the line and then the exertion stays behind the line. And this includes the rest of your life, right? So we have to take into account steps at your job, right? Or NEAT, we call it in the fitness industry, which you've probably heard that acronym, non-exercise. I can't remember. I'm going to get it wrong. It's essentially all of the exertion that happens in your life that is not in your controlled exercise, N-E-A-T. I'm retired. I don't have to remember the acronyms completely. So we've got this line and then all of that exertion that is the exercise, right? The controlled exercise from my program or any other exercise that they may be doing. Because sometimes people come into the program with a yoga practice and they want to keep it. I also want them to keep it. We work that in. We figure out how to keep their, the things that they love. I'm very passionate about that. So we keep it behind their line. And then the program itself is going to increase in the volume of exercise, the amount that I'm asking them. So the day is going to come when we step over the line. We may or may not know in advance that we're going to step over the line. Often we do. And then we step over the line. What happened? Nothing happened. Oh, the line wasn't here. It was over there, actually. So you didn't step over the line because the line had moved, which is what we want to have happen. But we're always going to be constantly having to navigate this moving target of where that line is. And as well, let's say there's a stressful event right? Emotionally, maybe there's a loss of a friend or a family member. That line moves back 
for that period of time because of your stress level, your emotional stress level. So then they're like, I don't understand why this exercise that I did last month, it was fine, but this week I'm triggered. I'm in a flare. And I said, okay, and I'll say, great. Okay. What else has happened in your life? Oh, I got laid off from my job. Oh, I had to go to a funeral. Oh, I helped my friend move. Oh, I had, I had surgery. My partner had surgery, whatever you fill in the gaps. And then I can look at them and I can say, wow, that sounds like that could have overwhelmed your system. Is it possible that created a situation where your body couldn't handle as much of this other stuff that we're doing? Gosh, yeah, I wouldn't have thought of it that way. So then we're creating an awareness for, oh, I have a big trip coming up. I have a surgery coming up. I have an event coming up. Then we can start to look in the future and we can say, this thing is going to happen that may or may not overwhelm me. What do I need to do to navigate that? And then maybe we make sure we go to bed early every night. We reduce the stress in the places we can control it, right? Because we've got this big thing we've got to handle. And then surprise, maybe they don't flare that time. Maybe their exercise was fine. And maybe their line was in a more of an accurate spot, right? And... Again, I can't prove this scientifically. Maybe someday there'll be a research study. That'd be cool. I don't know. I was at Columbia doing post-baccalaureate work thinking I was going to be a chronic pain researcher and realized I really just still wanted to be an actor. So I dropped out and I'm not mad at myself, but maybe somebody else will do that work. I'm happy to help. But it appears that if I can get someone through a year of this investigation of their body and a year of We started around 12 to 15 minutes of exercise five days a week. And by the end, it's around 45 minutes of exercise those days of the week and rest days. Although I will also say that like you have so astutely assessed, rest days aren't really the best thing, but maybe you'll do 15 minutes of a light mobility or something on your rest days, rest days with air quotes. By the end, they're doing that six or seven days a week their bodies are more resilient. They can do more. They're not as sensitive. They can bounce back from these big big life events, from these stresses. They could walk into a gym and hire a personal trainer who doesn't have a background in fibromyalgia and work with them. They could take a workout class. And my idea really is, okay, you're going to graduate from me. You don't need me anymore. You are going to have access to these workouts. You're going to have three different 45 minute workouts that you could always do on your own if you don't want to pay for exercise. But if you want to walk into a Zumba class, okay, your left knee is weird and your back doesn't like this. And I'm not going to, I'm going to skip this in the warm up, or I'm going to tell the personal trainer that I hire that I, that these are hard for me, or I have this mobility issue because you've learned with a year with me. And then you can just use the system. You can buy into the fitness world that it has its own issues, right? You can just go be a consumer of fitness after this point, because you know how to track your body's recovery. You know your own uniqueness. You know what your body needs, and you've now learned to interpret the signals that it's giving you. And that, to me, is what gets really exciting, because when our bodies are more resilient, we aren't as sensitive, though we are, right? Everybody is sensitive, but we'll just get a signal instead of a shutdown. And that's really what I want to help people see, whether they ever talk to me, whether they, I hope everyone will watch the film because that's accessible and, you know, 
all of that. But whether they ever talk to me or whether they ever try this, it's about helping people see that resilience in the body is something that can be built if you're patient, even if you have something like fibromyalgia. There's so many good points that you made. And what I've seen with many of my patients as well, I think many people who are living with fibromyalgia chronic pain have a tendency to have catastrophic thinking. And when something isn't working it's like getting to the edge and jumping off the cliff and it's, I'm failing. Oh, here we go again. This is what happened last time. I can't do it. And I'm guessing a lot of times you're talking people off the cliff. Yeah. You, you did a little bit too much. Let's rein it in. And the analogy of removing the blindfold and understanding why you're being tortured and understanding activity. And it's funny when I will take histories and just a general physical for somebody and, I don't exercise. Well, I get about eight to 10,000 steps at work or something walking around, but that counts. And yet you could work out for 30 minutes and then sit all day and actually be worse than the person who, you know, and I, I think in a perfect world and I just had somebody that I was struggling. I said, if I walk for 30 minutes, it hurts or all at once. And I said, can you, the work at home, can you just set a timer for five minutes and walk slow on the treadmill for five minutes, once an hour, just to get up out of the chair. Could you maybe do that once every for 10 hours? And that's 50 minutes versus just sitting and doing 50 minutes all at once. It's better even to spread that out. And then, oh, I could do that. Oh, that's better. And often if I sit too long, I hurt. The same pharmacist said, if I stand still, sometimes I have to stand still, that hurts. So it's kind of like Goldilocks, not too hot, not too cold. I have to be in this position. And instead of having a fatalistic view of, oh, this sucks. Oh, that's how I'm wired. My nervous system is wired this way. And now I just have to harness the tools that I can use within my reason. What lessons did you learn from this week's episode? Some key points to keep in mind are that movement is important but should not be done haphazardly. The proper dosing and frequency are very important. Using tools like a step counter or a coach or trainer to help guide you as you go along on your journey is important, similar to proper dosing for insulin for type 1 diabetics. If you don't take enough insulin, you won't get better and risk health problems but if you don't take it with careful planning, you risk major side effects of low blood sugars. Thanks for listening. It is truly an honor to have you take me with you wherever you have been listening. If you have found this helpful, please leave a five-star rating, review, hit the like or follow button, and share with others. That way more can join you and others on your journey of living well with fibromyalgia. Until next week, go Team Fibro.